InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Medical misdiagnosis is a serious issue causing significant death and disability in the United States. Recent research by a team at Johns Hopkins examined the data to get a clear picture of the harm caused by these errors. Here to explain is Dr. David Newman Toker, lead investigator and director of the Center for Diagnostic Excellence. Doctor, can you tell us your estimate of the number of Americans affected by these diagnostic errors each year? The estimate of the number of diagnostic errors leading to serious patient harms, that's death or permanent disability, is about 800,000 a year in the United States. Prior research studies focused on specific clinical settings. How does this new study differ in its approach and findings? Yeah, so the background research that's been done previously is mostly based on, for example, the number of diagnostic errors in the hospital and the number in the emergency department, the number in primary care clinics. And there are problems with extrapolating all of those data to a broader number that is an estimate for the population. What we did is we took a disease-based approach instead. And what that allowed us to do was to make sure that we weren't double counting an error that happened in primary care that also happened in the emergency department that also happened in the hospital. So we took all of the usual suspect, most common diseases associated with serious harms when they're missed, such as stroke, heart attack, sepsis, pneumonia, meningitis, lung cancer, breast cancer, etc., and we examined their frequency in the population, the rate of diagnostic errors, and the approximate number of patients we expect are harmed, and added those all up. What does the term big three refer to in your study, and why are these particularly significant in the context of diagnostic errors? We refer to these three major categories of vascular events, infections, and cancers as the big three. And the reason why we call them the big three is that together, across a range of different study types, we have found that the vast majority of serious harms, about 75%, are attributable to diseases in just those three categories. I see. 15 diseases account for over 50% of the total serious harms. Can you highlight some of the uh, frequent conditions that contribute to that? Yes. The number one overall cause of serious harms associated with misdiagnosis is stroke. It's also obviously the leading vascular event associated with harm. That's about 100,000 of the 800,000 cases a year, roughly. And then each of the other diseases in the top five are sepsis, pneumonia, venous thromboembolism, or what's sometimes called pulmonary embolism, or blood clots going from the legs to the lungs, and lung cancer. So these are some of the common diseases that we see in clinical practice, and it's not surprising, therefore, that they might be near the top of the list. It's shocking that stroke is misdiagnosed so often. Why is it particularly challenging to diagnose? I think it's instructive in answering that question to compare how misdiagnosis of stroke compares to misdiagnosis of heart attack. So for example, stroke is missed about 17.5% of the time based on the available data, and heart attack is missed about 1.5% of the time. That disparity, that difference of about tenfold is attributable to a number of things, one of which is that stroke has clinical presentations that are a lot more varied than heart attack. So stroke may present as weakness or confusion or fainting or trouble walking or dizziness and vertigo. 
the last of which there, dizziness and vertigo, is the most likely to be associated with a misdiagnosis because it looks like common benign inner ear conditions. Heart attack tends to present with chest pain or occasionally back pain or nausea and vomiting, but the list is shorter. The second thing is that we've invested a lot of energy and resources in improving the diagnosis of heart attack over the last 50 years. So we've developed better bedside tests, EKGs, et cetera, blood biomarkers like the troponin tests and the high sensitivity troponin tests that people hear about now, chest pain protocols and pathways in emergency departments, and quality measures that people are rated on in the healthcare industry for how their performance is. So all of those things have contributed to relatively low rates of harm from diagnostic error. It's actually quite amazing to think that about 99% of heart attacks are correctly diagnosed. Stroke, I think we could be doing the same thing, but we really have to invest in pathways of care and improvements in better bedside diagnosis. Our guest is Dr. David Newman-Toker with Johns Hopkins and lead investigator with this study and director of the Center for Diagnostic Excellence. You highlight the importance of diagnostic excellence dashboards. Can you explain their function and how they could help in quality improvement? Yeah. When we think about diagnostic errors, we often refer to them as the bottom of the iceberg of patient safety and quality, the sort of hidden large sink of morbidity and mortality that's not being seen, monitored, and measured. And to be able to surface that problem and to see it on a regular basis, it's critically important that we have some kind of routine measures or metrics that we can assess not only our overall performance, but monitor the impact of new interventions. So if you want to think about it as moving the needle on diagnostic error or harm from diagnostic error, what we're trying to develop is needles that we can move. So dashboarding is one way to do that. And it's, for example, we can take administrative data that look at stroke rehospitalizations after being discharged as you just have a benign inner ear condition from the emergency department and look at those stroke readmissions using robust statistical methods to determine what the approximate rate of diagnostic adverse events or harm are associated with a misdiagnosis in that context. We use a method we call the SPADE method or symptom disease pair approach to diagnostic error. And that allows us to take this kind of approach across most of the conditions that we describe in the paper we've been discussing. We see sometimes on TV dramas, one doctor will come in with a crazy diagnosis of a disease and everyone will shake their heads, but it turns out he's right. Is that total fiction or does that ever happen? It does happen. Sometimes there are individual clinicians, either by dint of their training or personal experience, that they see something in a case that nobody else sees. It's more often the case that our goal, rather than making diagnosis heroic, is to make diagnosis reliable, something that Don Berwick at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has emphasized in the past. And so part of our goal is not to have to rely on those individual great diagnosticians to be able to get the right diagnosis. Every patient who visits the healthcare system deserves the same access to great diagnosis. Funding seems to be a major hurdle in combating diagnostic errors. How would increased investment change the landscape for this process? Yeah, I think this is a critical issue. We've seen some advances over the last 
five to seven years in the amount of federal funding that's devoted to this topic. We've seen increases from the range of about $7 million a year to the 20 to $30 million a year kind of investment, which is wonderful for the field. But to put that in perspective, we spend $39 million a year investing in research related to smallpox, a disease that was eradicated over 50 years ago. And I'm not saying anything about the importance of that research. It's quite important. It's important for monkeypox. It's important for biodefense and other things. But that just gives you a sense of just how little we're spending. For some diseases, we're spending upwards of $400,000 per year per death on conditions. And for diagnostic errors, we're spending about $50 per year per death. So it's definitely something that's going to have to go up substantially if we're going to really make a difference in solving this problem. If the goal is zero preventable harm from diagnostic error, how can our listeners play a part in that effort? Sure. And I'll just start by saying it's important that you said zero preventable harm. We all understand that occasionally it's not going to be possible to get the diagnosis right in every situation promptly and immediately. There are going to be situations where there's just too much uncertainty for us to actually definitively make the diagnosis at the first encounter. However, we could definitely be doing better than we're doing now. And patients can aid in the process of getting a better diagnosis. I usually tell patients that there are three main things that they can do. They can come prepared, ask questions, and stay vigilant after they leave the encounter. And I'll just briefly describe each. So coming prepared means having a brief if you will, sort of an executive summary of your symptoms and a timeline of those symptoms over time. What that does, if you have sort of a bulleted list of what happened to you over the last six months or three months or three days or however long your illness is, your provider can spend whatever time they have with you rather than gathering that information, instead thinking about what the diagnosis is. Then you have to ask questions. When a clinician speaks to you and says, I think you have X, Your question should be, what is the worst thing this could be and why is it not that? You're looking for a cogent answer to that question and not being dismissed. If the doctor dismisses you, you just need to find a new doctor. And finally, on the staying vigilant side, it's often the case that people will receive a treatment of some kind for their symptoms, etc., and they may not get better. And if they don't get better, the assumption is that the treatment's not working. So they'll perhaps call their doctor's office and say, the medicine's not working, I need a higher dose or a different medicine. And if that's what they ask for, that's what they'll get generally. However, if instead they realize that they might have the right treatment for the wrong disease, they can prompt the doctor on that front and they can say, my symptoms aren't getting better. Is it possible that we don't have the right diagnosis? Do we need to reconsider that? And that opens up a space for the clinicians to reconsider, hey, maybe this isn't a treatment failure. Maybe it's a diagnostic failure. Very good. Dr. David Newman Toker, lead investigator and director of the Center for Diagnostic Excellence at Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Next, is your water supply safe to drink? That story coming up. Stick around, there's more InfoTrack straight ahead. <laughs> 